So this evening I'd like to reflect upon the, the judging mind, this phenomena that we often refer to as the inner critic or the inner judge. Uh, there are a lot of teaching stories around the Buddha's life, and I would request that you hear these as teaching stories rather than sometimes as literal events. But one of the figures that often appears in these teaching stories is this figure referred to as Mara. And Mara is a kind of animated compound hindrance with a slightly malicious nature who has a mission, essentially, to undermine the Buddha. He's basically out to get him in every step of the way. So in the story of the Buddha's path, we hear the story of the young man, Siddhartha, sitting down under the Bodhi tree on the eve of his awakening, and being assailed <clears throat> by Mara. And Mara shoots all these arrows at Siddhartha, the arrows of restlessness, the arrows of aversion, the arrows of craving, the arrows of sloth and torpor, and particularly the arrow of doubt. In reality, what this story is pointing to is the fact that Underneath the Bodhi tree, Siddhartha was actually meeting his own mind and heart. And everything that a mind and heart can do to keep us mired or entangled in confusion and fear and a sense of limitation. And as the story goes, Siddhartha saw clearly that only as long as he allowed these forces to intimidate him, did they hold the power to deny him the freedom and awakening he sought for. And when he stopped being intimidated and could look Mara in the eye, when he could stop fleeing, it was the end of Mara's power. And as far as the story goes, Siddhartha looked Mara in the eye and said, I know you. And Mara's arrows were dissolved. If only it were so simple. (laughs) But this story, in a way, really kind of holds the, the essence of the teaching and, in a sense, the essence of mindfulness because we start to look at the difficult in a different way that things experiences events patterns that we have previously regarded as a problem or an obstacle we begin to see too that to some extent they remain an obstacle only as long as we are intimidated by them And that when approached in a more fearless way, with kindness, these 
difficulties, his problems, his obstacles, in truth become the classroom of our awakening. This is where we learn about patience and compassion and generosity and balance and and freedom. We don't learn these lessons, most of us, in the most idyllic moments of our lives. Now, the story of Siddhartha meeting Mara is probably one many of you have heard a lot of times. But you do notice that there is one outstanding visitor or obstacle that never seems to be mentioned. And there's reasons why it's not mentioned. And it is the visitor of what we would refer to as the judgmental mind, the inner critic, with the ongoing song of self-blame and shame and confusion and contempt that can actually shadow the lives of and hearts of many people. Sometimes people report to me, you know, that they get up in the morning with the inner critic in operation. You know, with the judgmental mind waiting like a pair of slippers beside the bed. You know, just to be slipped on and carried through the day. Um, Condemning, fault-finding, comparing, actually to some extent such a familiar presence that it's actually, it becomes even difficult to imagine a life free from that voice. And so familiar that kind of story and voice, that it seems almost centralized or integrated into who we feel ourselves to be. For some of you, this may be an irrelevant topic, in which case, feel free to take a nap. (laughs) But it's also clear that something that causes so much pain... Um, can't be exempted from our practice and our investigation. So much of our path, you know, we contemplate the body, we contemplate the mind, we sit, we walk, we stand. But I think the reality is that if this inner critic, this judgmental mind is not, not attended to in the light of awareness and investigation, it can end up coloring and distorting everything we do in practice. And for some people, they experience a reality that the meditator takes on the voice of that inner judge, Hmm? which is really kind of interesting to see. So before I turn really to to kind of trying to unpack the judgmental mind a little bit, I think the first thing to do is very important to make a distinction between this inner critic, this judgmental voice, and genuine discernment or discriminating, I would call it discriminating wisdom. Because discriminating wisdom or discernment got us here. It, it's what gets us out of bed in the morning rather than pulling the pillow over our head to sleep another two hours. It's discernment and that sense of what we deeply value and what is worthy to value that moves us to reach out to another person in distress, to act in ways that are dedicated to bringing harm and pain to an end. <laughs> 
it's that quality of knowing, uh, discerning what we deeply value at times that sometimes leads us to be quiet in moments we would rather shout in anger that brings us to sit and walk rather than hanging out in the central pleasures of Denbury. It keeps us showing up. Hmm? Keeps us showing up even in the moments when it, everything can seem impossible. In fact, this quality of discernment or discriminating wisdom is truly the source of every skillful and wise act and word and choice that we engage in, every step that we take that leads to the end of suffering. But we also see that discernment or this quality of discriminating wisdom is drawing on certain understandings. It's drawing on ethics, a commitment to integrity. It's drawing upon... Um, it's drawing upon understanding, it's drawing upon compassion, it's drawing upon many of these qualities. And actually this quality of discernment is always engaged in really uh, honoring, honoring our own capacity for wakefulness to really, really have the same understandings as the Buddha did. Now, judgment is the way that we use that word is, of course, entirely different than this quality of discernment because we might still get out of bed in the morning, we might still sit and walk, and we might still show up. But every step of the way, of course, we're, we're berating ourselves, we're scolding ourselves, we're, we're rebuking ourselves for you know, being stupid or unworthy or inadequate, that everything we do is kind of like not good enough. And, um, and we really see that that voice is not drawing upon ethics or, or deep values, that that's actually drawing on Mara. So that, that kind of negative voice is drawing upon Mars, it's drawing upon aversion, it's drawing upon craving, ill will, and fear. And rarely is that kind of voice a source of skillful action or speech or choices. And the simple reality we all see is that that voice of judgment, that voice of blame, certainly doesn't lead to the end of suffering. But it is suffering in itself, and it compounds suffering. And in a way, rather, what it really does, that voice, is to kind of close the door on everything that is true, everything that is worthy, everything that is free within ourselves. And even maybe even more significantly, this kind of power of judgment, the power of, of the inner critic, actually, in very real ways, suffocates ethics. Not necessarily that we're unethical towards others, but we may be not living in a light of non-harming towards ourselves. So this is just to really honor that distinction between discernment and judgment. One is very necessary in our life, very much leads to part of the paradigm of leading to the end of suffering. Uh, the other is actually really not helpful. There's a Zen teacher who says that, said that the training in liberation begins with compassion for the self. Now to cultivate 
the non-judgmental mind, the mind that is free, the heart that's free from this tendency, is really the way that we begin to open the door, open our hearts to generosity, to compassion. So then the real question is, how do we do this? You know, what does a non-judgmental mind and heart actually look like? Because we would surely like one. What does it really mean for us to be free of this inner critic and to put that sniping voice to rest? And I think this is actually a real question, a real koan to take into our life and to take into our practice. And I think, I think to really have a, a, an understanding or an answer to that question of what does the non-judgmental mind look like? We have to really turn our attention to the very experience, the very actuality of the judgmental mind and almost embrace the painfulness of it with exactly the same mindfulness that we would bring to embracing a pain in our bodies. The Dalai Lama once, in in speaking about compassion, he said, if you really want to understand what compassion is, you should look into the eyes of a mother or a father as they cradle their sick and ailing child. My own sense is we actually really need to cradle or to embrace the, the judgmental mind in just this way. To cradle its torment, its sense of being lost and confused. Sometimes compassion is spoken about as our capacity to listen to the cries of the world. And of course, we are a part of that world. <coughs> and this, this quality, I think, of listening, embracing, is really not separate from mindfulness. In some ways, it's the essence of mindfulness. Uh, the capacity that allows us to really see and understand and find freedom in everything that feels stubborn and stuck and impossible. You don't need me to tell you that mindfulness is such a present moment experience. Concerned with understanding and embracing the entirety of each moment with tenderness and warmth and interest. And in the light of that quality of attention, Sometimes we come to discover that it's really impossible to hate or to fear anything we truly understand, including the judgmental mind. And we may even begin to see that the greatest barrier to to compassion and to freedom is, is not the pain and the suffering and the difficulty we meet in this life, but one of the greatest obstacles to compassion is this ongoing tendency to judge, to inflict tremendous harm upon our own well-being. Because in doing so, in a way, we we kind of harden our hearts to ourselves. We kind of armor our hearts to a sense of the possibilities of a very profound loving wholeness and freedom. So, like Siddhartha, we are asked really to look the inner critic in the eye and to really almost begin a dialogue, to begin a conversation with this pattern. 
It's not about just wanting it to go away, but to really understand what this pattern of judgment is actually teaching us. And I could almost suggest that the whole path and all, all the insight and compassion we seek for can actually be found in that dialogue and that conversation with this pattern. None of us, no matter how it may seem, were actually born with this voice. We were not born with the inner critic somehow intact and well-developed. It is a learned pattern, a well-practiced way of seeing and relating. This is good news. Because that which is learned can also be unlearned. Learning to understand the inner critic is actually not just about feeling better about ourselves. Of course, we'd like that. But it's actually beginning to see that the judgmental mind is not a clear or truthful mind. That the judgmental pattern is not one of clarity or truthfulness but is actually a mind, a a lens, a coloring of seeing that disables our capacity to see the entirety or the wholeness of anything. And in this sense, the, the judgmental pattern tends to suffocate mindfulness because the judgmental pattern tends to seize upon fragments or particulars of ourselves or others and mistake those fragments or particulars to be the truth or the entirety of ourselves or another. I want to read you something for Oliver, from Oliver Sacks, and I hope you'll be... It's, it's a little bit long, so I hope you don't mind. Rebecca was 19 when she was referred to our clinic, but as her grandmother said, just like a child in some way. She couldn't find her way around the block. She couldn't open a door with a key. She sometimes put on her clothes the wrong way without appearing to notice. She seemed, as her grandmother said, to have no sense of space. She was clumsy and ill-coordinated. A klutz. One, that's a very American, Jewish-American expression, by the way. A klutz, one report said, a motor moron, another. Although when she danced, all her clumsiness disappeared. Rebecca had a partial cleft palate which caused a whistling in her speech. Degenerative myopia were requiring very thick glasses. She was painfully shy and withdrawn, feeling that she was and had always been a figure of fun. But she formed warm, deep, even passionate attachments. She deeply loved her grandmother. She loved nature and stories, although she never learned to read. She was at home with poetry and was in herself in a stumbling, touching way, a sort of primitive, natural poet. She was devout, loved the lighting of the Shabbat candles, going to synagogue, All this was possible for her despite the fact that she couldn't count money, read or write, and scored low in all IQ tests. Thus she was a moron, a fool, or had so appeared and been called her whole life, but one with an unexpected, strangely moving, 
poetic power. Superficially, she was a mass of handicaps and incapacities, and at this level felt herself to be a mental cripple. But on some deeper level, there was no sense of incapacity, but a feeling of calm and completeness, of being fully alive. Spiritually, she felt herself a full and complete being. When I first saw her in the clinic, I saw her merely as a casualty, a broken creature who scored low on all tests. The next time was very different. I came across her in the garden, sitting on a bench, delighting in the beautiful spring day. She sat composed with her face, calm and smiling. She could have been any young woman basking in the warmth of a beautiful spring day. This was my human, as opposed to my neurological vision. She had scored appallingly in all the tests, yet they had given no inkling of anything but the deficits. They had given me no hint of her positive positive powers, no intimation of her inner world that was composed and poetic. I realized the inadequacy of our evaluations. They failed to show the beauty of Rebecca, who enjoyed not only a simple but sacred view of nature, who was filled with promise and potential. What I saw in Rebecca, what she showed me, I began to see in all the patients in the clinic. Rebecca was the first to tell me that we paid far too much attention to the defects of our patients and far too little of what far too little to what was intact. It kind of sums up the judgmental mind, doesn't it? We see the defects. We don't see or honor what is intact. I would like to look at this tendency, this pattern of self-judgment, not as one hindrance, but as a compound hindrance, multi-hindrance. You could get a feel for this every time you find yourself in a situation where the judgmental mind is operating, you kind of get a sense of the wind, of all of the hindrances flowing through. You certainly see craving. The craving aspect of the judgmental mind takes the form of all the expectations we have of ourselves, others, all of the shoulds, all of the ideas of perfection. There is no judgment without these expectations and shoulds and ideals of perfection. Sometimes we see the fa- in the failure of our expectations, we see the restlessness and the anxiety, the demands on ourselves that generate endless thought and emotion, the fears of failure, the fears of imperfection, and all of the ways that we strive and struggle to meet our ideas of who we should be. Certainly in the judgment of mind we do see aversion and ill will and that's a kind of equal opportunity hindrance because that will get directed at the body, it will get directed at the mind, it will get directed at thoughts, you know. It's an equal opportunity hindrance. Pushing away and blaming and shaming and belittling and certainly we see the presence of doubt in the judgment of mind. Doubt in our worthiness. Doubt in our capacity. Doubt actually in our own goodness. 
and the possibility of change. And perhaps the only hindrance that doesn't really make a really obvious appearance in the judgmental mind is sloth and torpor or sleepiness and drowsiness. But I think this one comes with it too, in a kind of more disguised form of despair, sense of powerlessness, resignation, numbness. And of course, holding all of this together is this kind of inner tyrannical view of self, the belief in who we are and the belief in who we are not, that continues to fuel this pattern. So in a way, this is our task, this is our invitation to understand this, this compound, to, to loosen the hold of it, and to re- rediscover, I think, all that is lovely, all that is possible, all that is true in ourselves, and to release and let go all that is fabricated. And the judgmental mind is surely a fabrication It's a fabrication of misunderstanding, of delusion and confusion. Thomas Merton once said that the essence of a spiritual path is a search for that which is true that springs from love. I think that search for what is true really begins with questioning that the fiction, the ideology of brokenness and incompleteness, which, of course, is all the judgmental mind speaks of. In the Sufi tradition, there's this wonderful kind of teaching. It says, to discover what is true, we must allow our thoughts and emotions to pass through three gates. And at the first gate, when a thought arises, we ask the question, Is this true? And if it is, we let that thought pass through. And at the second gate, we ask of the thought, Is this helpful? Is this helpful? And if so, we embrace it. And at the third gate, we ask, Is this thought rooted in love and in kindness? And that last question is perhaps the most important one of all. And my own sense is, of course, that judgmental thinking fails at all three gates. Not true, not helpful, not rooted in love and in kindness. So what do we do with them? What keeps them going? The hindrances certainly play a big part because what we, when we talk about the inner critic, you know, and the reason why it's not ever mentioned in any of the Buddhist lists is because we have reified something which is actually essentially thinking that is laced with aversion and self-directed or directed towards others. So we start to look at this averse, aversion-laden thinking. Now you take a simple example. It may have happened to you already here. You fall asleep in the hall. Something happens. You fall off your cushion or or, or you start snoring. And your neighbor wakes you up. Now, what happens next? (laughs) Do you just kind of like, you know, pick yourself up with compassion and generosity and non-event? 
Pick yourself up, reset intention, and begin again. Or would the all-too-familiar cycle of suffering begin? First, shame and blame. Useless, terrible, hopeless, stupid, unworthy, wrong, and now everybody knows it. (laughs) And we have this really rich vocabulary of ill will. Have you noticed that? The incredible richness of the vocabulary of ill will that we have. We look around us, everybody else sitting like a Buddha. Better than me, yogis who are getting somewhere, the people with the right karma. And so to judge, to inflict this voice upon ourselves, we actually need something to compare ourselves to. So either the evaluation is based on comparing ourselves to all the Buddhas around us, Or the evaluation is based upon comparing ourselves to our own self-imposed ideology of perfection, of should. So judgment has to have this rub. It has to have some something, some basis to evaluate upon. So it's either comparing with others or our own self-imposed ideology of perfection. Now, of course, once that gets started, the blaming and shaming, it sets off craving, doesn't it? I'm going to strive hard. I'm going to be a better, you know, more, more perfect yogi. I'm going to be the last one in here, last one to leave tonight, that's for sure. And that sets off agitation. How do I become more perfect? Well, then we start to increase the, you know, the, the evaluation criteria. You know, I'm going to sleep less, practice more, walk more, sit more, <coughs> be the best, and... And then, of course, we, we have problems with that. You know, we have problems with perfection. Have you noticed? It's how difficult it is to get there. <laughs> so that often, of course, sets off the striving and a sense of dullness and doubt. Now, those two hindrances are really close together. I should just go home. You know, I can't do this. It never was good enough. Story of my life. Story of my life. And then, of course, we have an interview group coming up and everybody's going to know it. This is kind of the tangled knot. What actually happened? We fell asleep. A few years ago, I went to the opening of the new kind of meditation hall at the monastery in England. Hundreds of people went. It was really a big event. It was really amazing. Big ritual, you know? Big, really big ritual. Anyway, the Thai princess from Thailand was there. You know, hundreds of... They they flew in all the big, big senior monks. Some of them were quite big, too. They flew in these big senior monks. But they all sat up there on the stage, you know, and there were hundreds of us sitting down here, you know. And, like, this was, like, really, like, a super event, you know. And you know what? There's all this stuff going on in this opening ritual, you know. I I can't even tell you. Golden balls being flung into holes and and all kinds of stuff, you know. And all these big senior monks up there, I bet 80% of them went through the whole ceremony like this. (laughs) There were hundreds of people watching them nod off. Never has there been a more spectacular nodding off ceremony. And you know what? They just didn't care. They were old. 
they were old, they were tired, they were jet-lagged. You know, it's like they absolutely didn't care. I mean, there was no shame in it whatsoever. The most shame is not enough I've ever seen. But, but I just thought, now, why is that? Why, why do they take, not take that so personally? You know, why are they not sitting up there blushing and red-faced, you know, and kind of, oh, no, you know? But they're just sitting there quite, just not enough. And I, it was so interesting to me, and I thought, well, ah, something else is going on here. <coughs> it's because it was the end of the story. It was a simple fact. It was a simple fact. Tired, fell asleep. There's also kind of this core reality that in this imperfect world, we all have our own difficulties one way or another. Yet the moment that we become lost in the endless symphony of judgment, of aversion and despair with ourselves, actually what we are doing is we are taking refuge in deluded beliefs of who we are rather than taking refuge in that sense of our deepest possibilities. In a way, we take refuge in a house too small. We see this whole cycle of judgment, of thoughts, hindrances, self-view, go round and round and become harder and harder until it's a habit. And this is something Chris mentioned last night, that what we dwell upon will become the shape of our mind. When we dwell upon ill will, directed outwardly or inwardly, it forms not only the shape of our mind, but the shape of ourself. There's a saying in India that when a pickpocket meets the saint in the market, the pickpocket only sees the pockets of the saint. When we look at ourselves or anyone or anything only through the eyes of what is of blame or judgment, of course, we only do see what is broken and imperfect. We miss the sincerity, the goodness of heart, the dedications, the kindness and compassion. Now, this is not an encouragement to switch to affirmation, to suddenly to kind of tell ourselves, you know, I'm really terrific, you know, really amazing person, really perfect we won't believe it anyway. Suzuki Roshi, I love, he once said this wonderful thing. He, said, he says, everything's perfect, but there's a lot of room for improvement. <laughs> I found this so interesting, you know, when I started teaching, like, at the university in Exeter. You, know, you, you get evaluated. I'd never been evaluated my whole life before. I always think, well, I go where I am, and I, and I do the best that I can, and actually I'm doing the best that I can, you know. <laughs> and, and then suddenly so you get these forms, you're evaluated. And at first I kind of was, felt kind of quizzical about this. I wasn't quite sure how I felt about this. And then I decided I really liked this because it actually showed me about where I could improve. It actually showed me what worked and what didn't work. I could actually learn something from this. <clears throat> So I think there's something about not being afraid of evaluation, but when is evaluation skillful? How open are we to receiving, for example, critical feedback and saying, hmm, maybe I can learn something from this and actually you know, genuinely enjoy that rather than actually feeling that every kind of feedback we get is necessarily going to throw us into this judgmental mind. 
So there is something very, very positive. And, I, you know, it, it's like in the Buddhist tradition, this part where the Buddha says, a good monk or a good nun is one who can be rebuked. One who can be rebuked. That's interesting, isn't it? Who's able to receive critical feedback without interpreting it as being yet another kind of way of self-blame. Something important in this life. The kind what we are asked to have compassion for is not myself, but the self. Now, because we actually see that judgment is a kind of like cultural virus, I think. You know, I remember in the early years, in the early meeting with the Dalai Lama. He was actually so astonished to see what Westerners did to themselves. He actually could hardly believe his ears when people would t- speak about being so, you know, self-blaming and condemning and critical. He actually was astonished, you know. Um, and I think perhaps, you know, there is something about a cultural error here that we do subscribe to. Yeah, because we... We, we kind of live in the, this kind of world which is, in which self is so centralized that we come to believe it, that that is who we are. There's a, a T-shirt I've seen around recently on where a few young people are wearing it, and, and it says, actually, it really is all about me. I thought, finally, someone was honest enough to say it. You know? <laughs> Actually, it really is all about me. <laughs> but we do see it's very difficult. There is a collective centralization of, of individuality in our culture. And we, we have these criteria, you know, we succeed or we fail. We win or we lose. We're admired or we're um, uh, kind of criticized. There's a tremendous emphasis upon uh, needing to earn acceptance and love. Um, through being perfect. Very predominant themes in our world. The truth is, and maybe this is a difficult truth to hear, but uh, the, the perfect self doesn't exist. Not going to be found. Its nature is to be fragile. Its nature is to be unreliable. So the Buddha encouraged, or this teaching encourages us, to look at the whole idea of myself as a fabrication, born of confusion. That myself is born moment to moment of whatever is clung to or identified with. And that apart from that clinging identification, there is no myself. Know myself to compete with, compare myself to, and struggle with, guess who? Either yourself or the self I expect myself to be. Now, myself is a very fragile creature, you may have noticed. And like everything that is born and fabricated, it's incredibly vulnerable. You notice the moment that you get a good self, you sometimes get them, don't you? Because I finally did great in that meditation, yeah? 
When you get a good self, it gets knocked right off the shelf by the appearance of another one. Hmm? So just when I'm pretty sure, you know, I'm getting somewhere in my practice, I'm a really good meditator, you will have a crummy sitting you identify with, and there it goes, you know. Oh, now, now I, I, I went from being the best meditator in the world to being the worst meditator in the world in a moment. Now, judgment of, is basically manifesting this identification. And the story of judgment needs a storyteller. So the story and the storyteller are co-joined. They arise together. They pass together. The storyteller gives credibility and solidity to the story. And the story that is told reinforces the credibility of the storyteller. This is a kind of toxic marriage. Let me read you something from this book by Paul Brox. He's a neuropsychologist, I think, who spent his entire professional life looking for the self, by the way. It's his job. It's his job. So he he hasn't found it, by the way. So he says, the illusion is irresistible. Behind every face there is a self. We see the signal of consciousness in a gleaming eye and imagine some ethereal space behind the vault of the skull lit by shifting patterns of feelings and thought charged with intention and essence. But what do we find in that space when we look? The brute fact is, there's nothing but material substance. And he goes on, another part of the book, he says, One might think that the self is divided in such circumstances, but this would be to wallow in the illusion of unity, to imagine in the first place that there is some whole thing to be fractionized. There isn't. From a neuroscience perspective, we are all divided and discontinuous. The mental processes underlying our sense of self, feelings, thoughts, memories, are scattered through different zones of the brain. There's no special point of convergence, no cockpit of the soul, no soul pilot. They come together in a work of fiction. A human being is a storytelling machine. The self is a story. This is not to say that our lives are fictions. We are embedded in a universe with physical and moral dimensions where every thought and action splinters into a million consequences. It says, who tells the story of the self? That's like asking who thunders the thunder or rains the rain. It's not so much a question of us telling the story as the story telling us who we are. I find that really interesting. The story is telling us who we are. And part of our our centralization of I, or believing ourselves to be the pilot in the cockpit, is to imagine that I'm doing this. I'm, I'm telling the story. And that's an awful responsibility, and we judge ourselves for it. 
You know, we think we, we are such a failure because I keep telling the same story. But actually, every moment, the story is possibly, and this is something really important to consider, the story is telling us who we are. How does that happen, or what gives that, that power? Of course, it is primarily through identification with the thought patterns that arise. Okay, so it's a really good one to reflect on. Now, even to want the judgmental mind to go away can be more ill will. Of course, it's human. We don't want the pain and the sorrow of judgment. But there can also be another or even kind of apparently more enlightened storyteller. This is a very important one in practice. We tell ourselves to let go of judgment. Have you ever told yourself that? We tell ourselves to let go of judgment. It is another way, another illusory way, we are actually centralizing self. Did we get up in the morning and decide to be judgmental? Anyone have that determination, that intention? Did we get up in the morning and say, I'm going to just grasp hold of everything today? And then we see it happening. And, and we imagine, we, we shout at ourselves to let go. We shout at ourselves to let go. Our, it is not our responsibility nor our capacity. It is so interesting that even when experientially we see the shifting shape of selfing, as John was talking about yesterday, you know, that there's nothing that stands in place, that there is, you know, that, that there is no, no pilot in the cockpit. You know, we, we start to see that so experientially. And yet still centralize the idea of me to the degree that we imagine in midst the pain of judgment and amidst the pain of grasping. We imagine that still somewhere hiding within us there's the kind of little self that's going to emerge and let go. <laughs> it makes no sense. It makes no sense. What we do actually begin to see is that um, you know, selfing, grasping all part of the same fabric not separate. I don't grasp. Selfing and grasping is, is a part of the same fabric. Selfing and grasping are magnifica- magnific- magnifications, intensifications of craving and aversion. They're not separate. Including the aversion of ill, self-directed ill will. Non-identification, non-clinging, non-selfing are also different words for the same phenomenon. It is not that I grasp or I let go. What we actually see that the aversion and craving are the prime conditions for clinging and selfing, including the formation of the inner critic. What we also see is that kindness and compassion, calmness and equanimity are the ideal conditions for the releasing, the natural releasing of that stickiness and that clinging. So our job in practice is really quite simple. It's not about setting up a superego that lets go or, or clings, you know. And it's so important to see that because, you know, in, in some ways in practice, you know, when the, when the inner critic is really a 
very pronounced habit. It, it's meditation's a miserable experience because we we keep expanding our portfolio of perfection. You know, I mean, it was bad enough before we started to meditate, and we just had to try and be a kind of reasonable person in the world, you know. And now we've got to be calm, you know, and we've got to be compassionate, you know, and we've got to be kind, you know, we've got to be accepting, and, you know, we've got to be generous. We have so many more possibilities to fail. It's amazing, and it's just really highlighting, expanding the portfolio of perfection, something to be very careful of. What we actually do in practice is we cultivate the conditions that allow for relinquishing to happen all by itself. The conditions of kindness or compassion or generosity of care. These are brought into being. They are brought into being because they're honored, they're respected, they're, they're attended to, and so they grow. They grow. And within these conditions, the pattern of aversion-laden thinking finds little, very little ground to grow in. Finds very little ground to grow in. So rather than having an orientation of how do I get rid of this judgmental voice, how do I make it go away, the bigger question is, in this moment, is there a possibility of cultivating a greater kindness, of connecting with a greater compassion? of connecting with a greater sense of ease. And sometimes, you know, that's really not as far away from us as we imagine. And in that, of course, we actually do see the calming of the story. When there is a more of a calming of the story, the storyteller is not being fueled. And we begin actually not to tell a different story, but actually really begin to see a greater stillness, a greater quietude coming into being. And in this practice of mindfulness and insight, we apply this to the body and all bodies of experience. We apply this practice of mindfulness and care to the mind and heart and everything it can experience. And we also apply this practice of mindfulness and care to the body of judgment. The body of judgment. We're actually training ourselves in many things, many qualities. Ethics, kindness, non-harming, all of these begin to, to kind of make that whole pattern of ill will far more transparent. Yes, the thoughts can arise and we see them as thoughts and not as self. Now, th- that takes some effort, that cultivation. But actually, it does also become more effortless. Effortless. In the light of awareness that is soft, receptive, the whole kind of formation, the whole fabrication of self-view begins to calm. And actually, we can begin to see the kind of alchemy of mindfulness, which is really to bring a, a sense of possibility into to all the moments that seem somewhat impossible. And it's truly worthwhile to imagine a life and imagine a moment that is really deeply free of, of judgment and blame and shame. And that's uh, what this path, this practice, is actually truly concerned with. Not as an ultimate goal, but as a moment-to-moment application. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.